You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananon, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, M.D., Charles, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Commodore Obvious, Pablo, Toves, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Kenway, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about William Phipps. That's a name that many of you are probably already familiar with. Maybe not super familiar, but a lot of you probably just went, Oh, okay. Wait, who is that again? Many of us learned this name when we first learned about the Salem Witch Trials. William Phipps was the governor of Massachusetts at the time. That's what he's most famous for, but during his lifetime, he was renowned for a career full of naval and military successes. But his early years were a bit less grand and a bit more scurrilous. This is episode 176, A Rum Lot. William Phipps was born in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the province of Maine in 1651. Discussing Phipps' early life is troublesome. Most of what we have comes from the pen of Cotton Mather, one of the most famed Puritan wordsmiths of all time. Mather was a a pamphleteer and a historian and a journalist and a biographer and a propagandist. Everything that he says should be taken with a grain of salt, including his biography of William Phipps. He's painted Phipps as a a rustic shepherd boy, you know, hard-working and tending the flock an honest young lad, which is probably kind of true, his family did own sheep, but the honest and good shepherd boy is an ancient trope. It spans religions and mythologies and bad paperback fantasy and politically motivated biographies for millennia. More concretely, we know that Phipps did take on an apprenticeship at the local shipyard there in Maine. He learned the arts of building and repairing and outfitting a ship, and then he continued on with that line of education in Boston at some of the finest shipyards in all of America. He married a relatively prominent local woman named Mary Spencer, the widow of a man named John Hull. Now, 
Everyone is very careful to point out that this was not the same John Hall that owned the Massachusetts Mint. They weren't even related to each other, but William Phipps did know that John Hall, the Mint Master. Remember all of that raw silver that was somehow showing up in Boston, a region that had no silver deposits, only to be coined by the Boston Mint, by John Hall? Well, William Phipps convinced John Hall to invest some of that silver in a venture he had planned along those lines. Now, Phipps wasn't a pirate. If he did engage in a bit of buccaneering in his restless youth, it was wiped from the record. Instead, he opened up a shipyard. He built ships up in Maine. During a raid on his hometown in King Philip's War, William Phipps gathered the entire town together and took them out to sea in one of his vessels. That saved all of their lives, and it earned him a reputation. It earned him official recognition from the governor. When he was still a young man, William Phipps was already making a name for himself. But once his shipyard was running smoothly and making money, Phipps finally took to sea. He had a single destination in mind, the Bahamas. John Hall financed his first voyages down to the West Indies to hunt sunken Spanish silver. Unfortunately, we know almost nothing about William Phipps' early treasure-hunting voyages. William Phipps wasn't entirely illiterate, but he did have his letters read to him and dictated his mandates to others. He never kept any sort of journal, especially not on these early voyages. We do know of at least one occasion on which he fished a well-known wreck off of New Providence Island. There he secured what would be called, quote, his late successful returns. However, despite our lack of details, we can draw some interesting conclusions from that tidbit. The very fact that this Massachusetts shipwright was able to dive that wreck is surprising. I suppose we do need to talk for a moment about the Bahamas and its capital. By 1680, the Bahama Islands were in English possession. New Providence was the largest island in the chain, still is, and housed the capital, Charlestown. There were 900 listed residents that lived in Charlestown, or in the countryside immediately around it. Among those, there were a governing elite. They came from Jamaica, originally. Then there were a few merchants and middle-class craftsmen. Lower on the totem pole, you have rum mongers and fishermen and all of the families, the wives and children. And then you have the lower classes, the prostitutes and slaves. In all, it's the kind of thing that you would find in any colonial West Indies township. Peter Earle writes, quote, Men might do well or badly as privateers or planters, as merchants or illicit traders in this brave new English world. But there was another way of making a living, a lazy course of life, which may well have been more attractive to many restless spirits than even buccaneering. End quote. The lazy course of life in question here were what were called the wreckers. Wreckers usually didn't live in town. They spent their days roving the Bahamas, scouring the sandbars and coastlines for any hint of a sunken ship. Most of the wreckers were former privateers, fresh off of the Third Anglo-Dutch War, 
and a few even dabbled in outright piracy after the war. Now, we're not talking about any of the big names, no Bartholomew Sharps, but capturing a few merchant vessels here and there. Later on, Captain Black Bart Roberts would say that a pirate's life was one of, quote, plenty, pleasure, and ease, liberty, and power. Who would not balance credit on this side? No, a merry life and a short one shall be my motto. Most of that sounds great, but that last bit, the bit about the short life, that's what the wreckers took issue with. Wrecking gave you most of the benefits of pirating. You know, you got rum and the open sea and freedom and a tropical paradise and enough coin to visit your local brothel once in a while, but you didn't have the promise of being shot at too often. More to the point, you didn't face the threat of a hangman's noose. Treasure hunting was kind of legal. I mean, it would depend on who you asked at the time, but right about this period is when questions like what constitutes international waters were being discussed. A lot of our modern rules about maritime law were being decided at this time. The Spanish, for example, considered sunken Spanish treasure ships and their contents Spanish property. But everyone else, the English, the French, the Dutch, they all considered any treasure found in national waters, that is, near the coast, that nation's property. So if a Spanish ship caught you with hundreds of thousands of pesos in Spanish silver, they would take issue with that. But the English wouldn't hang you. And I should make a distinction between these wreckers, those in the immediate aftermath of the war who operated within the confines of the law, and their later counterparts who would set traps for Spanish ships and then kill everybody in the crew and take their treasure. That was piracy. This wasn't. However, these wreckers were organized and territorial. Not just anybody was allowed to roll up and start diving one of the wrecks there. Which makes it surprising that they would allow a Massachusetts shipwright like William Phipps to dive any of the wrecks in the region, especially the valuable wreck near New Providence. We don't know why they did. Maybe he bribed them. More probably, considering what we know about Phipps' later life, he very likely talked his way into it. He was a man with a silver tongue, William Phipps. Somehow, though, he got in good with the wreckers. We don't know, but it seems very likely that he may even have recruited a crew from New Providence. The record finally catches up with William Phipps in 1683, thanks to his arrival in no less august a locale than the court of King Charles II. And here we need to tread carefully. Our sources on Phipps expand when he reaches London and not all of them are unbiased. Most of what we know moving forward comes from the pen of a man named John Nepp. And John Nepp hated William Phipps. In his account, Nepp paints Phipps as a dull-witted and rude, illiterate vulgar. Somehow, though, simultaneously, he's a disingenuous social climber, full of guile. It's inconsistent and as we will see, not to be entirely trusted. Phipps was in London to personally meet with King Charles II 
and Rear Admiral Sir John Narborough. Phipps had a pile of silver to hand over to the king, and he had a proposal. This proposal reached the ears of an Irishman, about whom we know very little, named John White, and from there it made its way to Narborough, and from there to the king. Narborough facilitated this meeting with King Charles. And what Phipps had to propose was another treasure-hunting expedition. But he needed something, not money and not men, but he needed a ship. Now I know what you're thinking, why did the owner of a shipyard with investors at the Boston Mint and a big pile of money, why did he need a ship from the king? The answer to that is complicated. It's shrouded in intrigue and mystery and the whiff of conspiracy. John Nepp, though, gives us a much more simple explanation. He tells us that William Phipps was after notoriety. He was out to make a name for himself, to earn clout in the court of King Charles, to get in good with John Narborough, and to shake hands with the king. Which is probably accurate. I mean, handing the king a big pile of silver and then borrowing one of his ships with the promise of an even bigger pile of silver, well... That's going to get his attention. But it's not that easy. It's never that easy when Admiral Sir John Narborough is involved. As we have seen with his designs on Peru and on Panama, Narborough likes his conspiracies needlessly complex. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. With a bit of prodding from the rear admiral, the king agreed to Phipps' proposal, which is odd. It's the first thing that makes me scratch my head a bit. At this moment, treasure hunting was the talk of all London town. William Phipps was on the radar. He had a reputation, remember? And Spain was looking at him really hard. It's odd that the king, given that Phipps was who he was, would agree to this. But Narborough, a trusted member of the court, pushed for it. 
Not only that, John Narborough provided the ship, fresh off a recent diplomatic visit to Algiers, a little frigate called the Rose. Now, this Rose was probably the Sally Rose from Salet. I say probably because there are a few inconsistencies. The name Sally Rose was given to the ship by her New England crew a bit later on, under Captain Thomas Pound. This ship is referred to in the sources as the Rose of Algiers, or the Golden Rose. This ship carried more guns than the Sally Rose, but, you know, you can always add or take guns away. The timing, though, doesn't match up perfectly. It leads me to believe that the Sally Rose probably entered New England service about a year after her first arrival, which is later than I previously told you. To be safe, I'll refer to this ship merely as the Rose. Whatever the case, though, William Phipps was now in command of the Rose. He sent orders to his crew, and then proceeded to dally in London for a few weeks. Then he made his way down to the Downs to take command of the Rose. But when he arrived, the crew was in an uproar. They were drinking and fighting and holding down the ship like she was in an enemy port, under siege. And in a way, she was under siege. By a single, well-dressed, clearly well-off agent of the king, John Nepp. Nepp was in possession of articles from the king detailing what this mission was to entail. Those articles were to be signed by every crewman on board the Rose. The orders were, quote, for obtaining or gaining all such plate, silver, bullion, gold, and other riches as they can in, by, from, or out of any wreck or wrecks lying or being amongst the said Bahama Islands, or in any other place or places thereabouts in any of His Majesty's the King of England's dominions. End quote. That is a needlessly verbose statement. It's also vague, broad-reaching, you might say. The crew, though, was upset because they said that their agreement was with William Phipps, not with the king. Part of the problem is that they couldn't read. They didn't trust this foppish dandy with a paper and a pen and demanding they sign something that they couldn't actually agree to. However, they weren't going to be allowed to sail if they didn't sign. Peter Earle writes, quote, On 5 September, Phipps persuaded them to sign the agreement. It was modeled on the no-pay-no-purchase contracts of the buccaneers with which many of this crew were obviously only too familiar. Where Phipps acquired this crew we do not know, but they were a pretty rum lot and seemed unlikely, from the beginning, to honor the article of their agreement by which they were bound. End quote. What's really worth noting here, aside from the fact that the crew were obviously West Indian rovers of one kind or another, was that agreement about the pay. It means that the crew were to be paid like the buccaneers. They're unpaid volunteers until they strike silver. That's not out of the ordinary for wreckers or, you know, for pirates. But here, the king officiated that, which is surprising. John Nepp, though, was to be the Rose's minder. He was to keep an eye on the ship while Phipps was in command. 
His job required him to stay on board the Rose until this voyage was completed, and I think we can all agree that putting somebody on board a ship that you're about to loan out to a crew of scallywags is the least any sensible person would do. But it rubbed Phipps and the crew the wrong way. Largely, the problem here was that Nep was to act as the ship's purser. A purser was, in theory, an accountant on board the king's ships. Sensible enough, but they also acted as a kind of shipboard merchant. Somebody that offered luxury goods for sale, like tobacco and brandy. The crown would supply rations on a king's ship, but anything beyond that had to be bought and paid for. In the navy, this usually indebted the sailors, beyond their wages. It was the kind of job that really only, you know, a man of means was able to do. Not only did you have to buy the position, you had to buy the goods. Everyone, except the crown, hated the purser. And John Nepp was no different. The crossing of the Atlantic did not go well for him. First of all, this crew of independent unpaid volunteers brought their own tobacco and their own rum. They had no need for his luxury goods. Nep found himself, you know, a well-bred merchant from London, I'll have you know, he found himself the object of derision. Because of course he did. And don't begin to feel sorry for him here. He spent his days talking down to and belittling every member of the crew. They were just too stupid to appreciate quality. But there is an aside I should mention here. Before William Phipps departed, he took on a passenger of some note. A man named Edward Randolph showed up. With word from the king that this ship was stopping at Boston and that he had to be aboard. Now, Phipps didn't want yet another highfalutin fop on board, but Nep pointedly took note of that exchange and Phipps finally agreed. Edward Randolph carried orders from the king to abolish the colony of Massachusetts and to reorganize New England into the Dominion of New England. Now, Randolph doesn't really play much of a role in this story. He was just booking passage here. However, later on, he and William Phipps, who is moving his way up Massachusetts politics, are going to butt heads. But for now, the antagonist of this story is John Nepp. He wrote of their first day at sea, quote, I spoke to Captain Phipps and desired him that he would be pleased to appoint myself some place to lie in. He told me that we must be contented to lie upon a chest till we came for New England, for all ye cabins and cradles were taken up already. End quote. He's saying that, as an agent of the king, he asked the captain where he should sleep, and Phipps told him to go down to the hold and sleep on some crates, because his men were taking up all of the cabins already. They were not going to have a friendly working relationship. As soon as they set out, John Nepp was shocked by the behavior of the crew of the Rhodes. Earl writes, quote, there can be few records of indiscipline on board a ship to match this account of Phipps' first command of an actual man of war. End quote. And I want to look at this for a moment. I mean, despite how trustworthy we may find John Nepp, accounts like this are exceedingly rare. 
We have few enough accounts of what life was actually like on a pirate ship. Fewer still, almost vanishingly small, are accounts from the other half. What was this world like through the eyes of someone in the upper class? So often, when we do get an account from somebody who could read and write, it's somebody like William Dampier who spends a good amount of their time trying to convince you that these pirates were not, in fact, pirates at all. I should mention, though, the first mate on board the Rose, Michael Cohen. Cohen appears to have been... Well, I don't want to call him the real captain. Phipps was mostly in charge here. But before he recruited this crew from wherever he did so, it appears that Cohen was their commander at that point. By their second day out at sea, Michael Cohen had already threatened John Nepp's life twice over. And then the ship set an odd heading. This astonished John Nepp. He realized they were heading for Ireland, for Limerick. That made zero sense. John Nepp wondered in his diary if, well, why didn't they stop at one of two or three different locations that would have been much faster and easier to get to? Was William Phipps intentionally, deliberately wasting time? Well, maybe. There in Limerick, this crew of a ship that belonged to the King of England behaved like pirates. They drank, they harassed the local women, and they went hunting. And when I say hunting, I mean they shot and slaughtered and salted livestock that belonged to local farmers. And then, if the farmers had the audacity to, you know, complain about it, they threatened them with a saber to the belly. The local law enforcement did come down on these pirates, and according to Nepp, quote, Mr. Cohen told him if he put any man on board them, he would throw him overboard and bid him make haste and begone himself, or else Cohen would fling him overboard. For said he, you have no business on board us. End quote. The first mate threatened to throw the local lawman overboard or any agent that he might send on board the Rose. And William Phipps did nothing. John Nepp was astonished at this. However, during the crossing, John Nepp went down to inventory his supplies in the hold, and he found that, quote, I had lost 40 gallons of brandy out of several casks, 21 bottles of canary, 18 bottles of claret, several cheeses, and one piece of freeze. End quote. A mere two days later, at the height of a storm that was pretty serious, quote, our ship was in great disorder, most of our company being drunk and swearing and cursing. I bless God, I had never heard the like in all the ships I have sailed in. And then he confronted the men. Quote, they said, God damn them, they would swear and be drunk as often as they pleased. End quote. John Nepp went below decks to escape this heretical revelry on board, and he caught a whiff of tobacco, his tobacco, more than likely. He followed the smell down to the magazine. There were men down there sitting on barrels of gunpowder, contentedly puffing away on their pipes. Nip, understandably, freaked out. 
He told them off. He asked them what they thought they were doing. He chased them out of there. And then he marched to Captain Phipps' cabin to confront him. Phipps finally leveled with him. They sat down and finally shared some real talk. Look, this crew is made up entirely of unpaid volunteers, savvy? You can't control them. I can't control them. But they know their business, so just keep your head down and maybe, just maybe, we'll make it to Boston alive and without an outright mutiny. Now, how much of this is to be believed? Edward Randolph, another king's man, and a government official, remember, he reported none of this in his diary. It's possible that it's all true, but it's also possible none of it is. You know, Nep could have been inventing all of this. Maybe a crewman made fun of his tight pants and he and a huff decided to get off at Boston and invented this whole fable to excuse himself. The truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. It likely was not as extreme as Nep said, but they were certainly undisciplined and probably stole from him. Regardless, as soon as the Rose reached Boston, John Nepp, who was to accompany this ship throughout her entire voyage, disembarked. As did Edward Randolph and his companion, but they were not bound to the ship. However, the journal entries that Nepp would eventually hand to the king explained his position. The Rose was supposed to spend a fortnight there in Boston, two weeks to resupply and repair the ship. In the end, though, she stayed for 15 weeks. Again, for some reason that John Nepp could not explain, William Phipps appeared to be wasting time. Didn't these unpaid volunteers want to get down south and earn a bit of silver? Wasn't that the job that the king had given him? Part of the problem was Phipps himself. This finally is well documented by independent sources, mostly court testimony. Phipps appears to have grown a bit of an ego while he was in London. As captain of a King's Royal Navy frigate, William Phipps demanded that all proper protocols be observed. The King's Jack must be flown every day. Any ship that passed the Rose in port must dip her standard in salute to this King's Royal Navy frigate, William Phipps Captain. Now, that is protocol for a Navy ship. But Nepp explained to William Phipps on more than one occasion that this ship was a loner. Yes, she belonged to the King and served in his Navy, but right now the Rose was loaned out on private duty. That duty being, of course, to fetch a huge pile of silver, remember? William Phipps listened to this explanation and nodded his head and then completely ignored it. On one occasion, early on, when a ship failed to dip her standard, William Phipps ordered a shot fired across her bow. That ship was a tiny little inconsequential fisherman. She was captained by an indentured servant just a few fishermen on board out doing their job. But Phipps, because he was captain of a King's Royal Navy frigate, sent a ship out to collect the captain. 
They dragged this elderly old fisherman on board the Rose and demanded payment for the shot wasted. That was something like five or seven pounds sterling for this warning shot across the bow, money that this indentured servant did not have. The old man pleaded poverty, but then the crew of this King's Royal Navy frigate threatened to kill him. Finally, the old man promised to get the payment from his master and was let go. That is insane. And it happened again the next day to a merchant. Now, at this point, most of the ships who were aware of the situation just sighed and dipped their colors to avoid any kind of confrontation. But that old fisherman's master was not about to pay this buccaneer on a King's Royal Navy frigate. He was a man of influence in Boston, and he brought suit against William Phipps. The magistrate there in Boston brought in John Knepp and William Phipps and that man of influence. And he had a look at the articles sent by the king and noted that there was absolutely no mention of the rights that Phipps was demanding. In fact, it looked quite a bit like William Phipps should have been long gone on his you know, duty to search for buried treasure. Remember, everybody here in Boston knew William Phipps. He was married to a somewhat prominent Boston woman and opened a fairly prosperous shipyard up in Maine. He was known to everyone in this story. A ton of notables there in Boston took him aside to have a quiet chat. You know, hey, what are you doing here, man? This is crazy. But Phipps somehow appears to have mollified them. Neps didn't understand how he could have done so at all. I mean, what did this madman say to make them not send him to jail? And we don't know what Phipps may or may not have told the law there in Massachusetts. But despite all of these egregious breaches of conduct and frankly illegal activities, he got away with it. At one point, a merchant who had seen the Articles of Agreement, who knew what William Phipps was about, refused to dip his colors, and they got in a minor firefight there in the harbor at Boston. His men were spending every night ashore drinking and fighting and, yes, harassing the local women. On one occasion, down Plymouth Way, John Nepp records that a posse of the men on board forced a farmer's wife to drink and drink and drink, and we all know where that's going. Why weren't all these men in jail? Nep was pulling out his hair here. Over and over again, the authorities said they didn't want to disrupt the king's mission, but I doubt that the king's mandate included theft and violence and gang rape. Unless... Unless... Unless maybe it did. Not exactly, of course. The king would never have condoned something like that for people living in Boston. But what was Phipps and what was his crew accomplishing here? They were causing a ruckus. They were making noise. A lot of noise. The kind of thing that everyone would take notice of, including any Spanish spies who may or may not have been in or around Boston. William Phipps was giving them plenty to write home about. Look at these filthy corsarios. Look at the depravity. Meanwhile, out to the east, off the island of Bermuda, 
Captain George Churchill of the HMS Falcon opened up his sea chest and pulled out sealed top-secret orders. Orders carrying the personal signet of Rear Admiral Sir John Narborough. When he broke the seal and read the contents, those orders stunned Captain George Churchill. Those orders were to sail south and to claim the untold riches, the almost mythical wealth of La Nuestra Señora de la Concepción. Next time we're going to dig into the alleged conspiracies and plots and counterplots that were at play in the West Indies in the summer of 1683. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anyone who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show, everybody who has donated through the website, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, online or in real life. All of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as usual, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight